Now, many of you are, are probably familiar with A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Just a kind of a short read, maybe 110 pages on the attributes of God. And if you've read this book, you maybe remember that the very first sentence of the very first chapter says this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And Tozer is exactly right. That is the most important thing about us. Indeed, we could say that what comes into our minds when we think about Jesus Christ is the most important thing about us. And why? Well, because God is. God is everything. God is the foundation. God is our bedrock. There's nothing before God. Everything builds on God. So what is the most important thing that we must think about, that we must know? It is God. Period. Now, I, I did some research, Barna Research. You can go to their website, and they have all these different studies. And I tried to find some statistics on what people think about Jesus Christ in America. I found a, a study from 2017 that said that 93% of Americans believe that Jesus was a real person. I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. 93% think he was a real person. 43% believed he was God living on earth. Okay, pretty decent. And then I went back and found a survey from 2011, so six years prior. In a different study, it said that 58% of Americans believe Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Okay, that doesn't quite fit. So we, really what we see is just that there's some confusion on who Jesus is in our country. And now as we get into our text, we're going to see some characteristics or some attributes of Jesus Christ. And I, I would propose that if we were to put together these attributes and create a study... And ask people if they can affirm these attributes all together collectively. It'd be my guess that less than 1% of the American population would be able to affirm the things that we are going to see in the scripture about Christ tonight. Now, if you know anything about church history, you know that people have been fighting about and, and disagreeing and, and battling over the nature of Christ from the very beginning. Really, the first four or five centuries of the Christian church were a constant battle on Christological doctrine or the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And we got these amazing councils that came from them and these amazing creeds that came from them. Think of like the Nicene Creed that came from these, these battles over the doctrine of Christ. And it makes sense that the early church would start with a battle over the doctrine of Christ because, again, that is our foundation. That is our bedrock. We have to start there. And that's where they started. And much of the heresy was pointed towards those doctrines. Think of heresies like Gnosticism or Arianism. They had to do with the deity and the nature of Jesus Christ. So now as we think about our, our text tonight, Colossians, if you remember any of the, the background, uh, this man named Epaphras has just fleed from the city of Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey, and he goes all the way over to Rome to see Paul who is imprisoned, to tell Paul about some false teachers that had been plaguing the Colossian church. They were preaching a false gospel, spreading false teaching, and he saw it as so important that he would travel really over a thousand miles just to get Paul's guidance. And Paul wrote this letter to be sent back to the Colossians to ground them in their faith. Now, we've already seen, we've went through verses 1 through 14 already, and really what that was was just an introduction. It was just... 
a, a prayer and a prayer of thanksgiving that Paul was giving. So we haven't yet got into the main body, but we will be getting into the main body tonight, starting in verse 15. Now, again, these first verses were obviously full of theology and doctrine, but now is when we're really going to get into the thrust of Paul's argument. And the grammatical form of these verses, 15 through 20, is very interesting. In fact, Paul has a very unique style, long sentences, very logical. This makes sense. I mean, indeed, our last text, verses 9 through 14, was one Greek sentence. That's Paul's style. Long sentences, very logical, very analytical. And this whole letter, really, it's, it's filled with pronouns which refer to the reader or the writer. And it's filled with first or second person verbs. But neither of those occur in this text tonight, verses 15 through 10, 20. Our text is filled with indicative verbs. And an indicative verb really is just a truth statement, a statement of truth. And that would make sense because if we were going to be, if we're going to be looking at the nature of Christ tonight, it makes sense that we would see truth statements about him. And that's exactly what we see. So it's very unique. Now, some scholars say that this is a, a hymn, maybe, and that maybe Paul uh, took this hymn that was floating around uh, the culture at the time and the churches at the time that was on the nature of Christ, and he took it and he just put it in his letter and used it as a way to kind of form his arguments on Christ and to defeat these false teachers. Now, it certainly does have the structure in the form of a hymn, and we should probably think it is a hymn, but now did Paul write it or not? I think the best way we should look at it is that Paul did indeed author this hymn. It may be that he took an already written hymn and, and tweaked it a bit and revamped it and put some more detail in it, but we should see it as Paul's authorship. Now, one commentator says this about the hymn. He says, Paul obviously uses the language and the concepts of this hymn as his Christological ammunition in fighting the false teachers. So really, if you read through the rest of the book, you see that he continues to pull from this, this hymn and he uses it as ammunition to defeat these arguments. It reminds me of 1 Peter 3.15. Maybe you guys are familiar with it. It's the text that we really get apologetics from. It says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So uh, we obviously always kind of look at this part that says, always be prepared to make a defense. And to make a defense is where this is the apologia, where we get the word apologetics from. And, and we kind of focus on that, but we kind of miss what's right before it. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Indeed, it's likely that the main verb in this text is honor Christ as Lord. That is our apologetic. To have Christ be the Lord of our life to honor his, him as Lord, to set him up as Lord of our lives. And in a sense, that's where we get this idea of presuppositional apologetics. Now, it's a big word, but what is it? It's just basically, what is our bedrock again? What is our foundation? Where do we start to, for every argument to come out of or every idea to come out of? Where do we start? What, are, what is the ultimate assumption that we make, that we take as fact? That is our presupposition. And what is our presupposition? Our ultimate assumption that we know is true and real, and that's where we're going to start, is that Christ is Lord. And I really do believe that Paul is, in a sense, putting this on display here in Colossians. His first 
The chunk, really, of this, of this main argument against these false teachers is talking about the nature of Christ, setting Christ up as Lord. So let's read our text, and then we can dive into it. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So, really, what I want for you guys tonight is to know these truths. Really, the application tonight is to know something. Know these truths. Know these, these, these truths about Christ. And really, I want you to know seven attributes of your Lord Jesus Christ that serve as ammunition against false teachers. So seven attributes of your Lord Jesus Christ that serve as ammunition against false teachers. That's what I want you to know tonight. So let's get right into it. What's the first attribute that we see in our text? Well, it starts in verse 15. It's that Christ is God. Look at verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God. In simple terms, what Paul is saying is that Christ is the unseen God. Christ is the God who is spirit. The God who, before the incarnation of Christ, was only spirit. In the New Testament, we see this word image, uh, this Greek word. We see it also in reference to Caesar's image on a coin. Now, what is this image? And, and we also know that, well, aren't we also the image of God? Have we not been created in God's image? Is, is this different here than what we are? Are we the same? Couldn't this just mean that Christ is just a created being? Indeed, it's kind of ironic that the text that so clearly teach the divinity of Christ are also the texts that so many heretics use to say that he's not divine. So what's going on here? Well, let's think about how we image God first. We image God in nature and in role. In nature by having minds and emotions and wills and desires and feelings and personalities. We can love. We can be patient we can show mercy. We also image God in role as rulers. And that might sound odd to you. But God, he rules all things. He rules the, the spiritual realm and the physical realm. He sovereignly rules all things. But we as God's creatures rule his created world, the earth. And we see that clearly in Genesis. He says that Adam, Adam and Eve have dominion over this created world. He, they have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. God has given them the role to, to rule this created world. So we image God in that way, both in nature and in role. But again, I ask this question, is this the same meaning of image as it pertains to Christ? And the answer is no, not at all. Christ is the exact image of God. I mean, look at what the text says. He is the image of the invisible God. Really what it's implying is he's the, he's the image of the transcendent God, the God that we cannot see. 
the attributes that we cannot image or reflect. Christ images God's incommunicable attributes. Those attributes that are his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his transcendence. Those are what Christ images. Now, if Christ images God's omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, and so on and so on, well then by definition, he is God. If anybody has all power or knows all things, he must be God. And not only does it say uh, that he, well, that he images God, but he says he is the image of the invisible God. When we look at in the Bible, when it refers to us imaging God, it says we were created in the image of God. This doesn't say that. This says he is the image of God. He is the exact representation of God. And that's exactly what we see in other verses in the Bible. Consider Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. It doesn't get clearer than that. Or Philippians 2.6, which says he was in the form of God. Or consider Christ's own testimony in John 14.8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells, dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. It really doesn't get any clearer than that either. Jesus is flat out saying, if you see me, you see the Father. We are one. We are the same. I am God, he is saying. The eternal God. Now what do we do with this the second phrase, the firstborn of all creation? Again, you can get hung up on that. There's, there's language in here that people want to use to try to twist to say, well, see, he's, he's, a, he's a created being. It says firstborn right there. Again, many heretics take that word, firstborn, and they use it to twist it up and say he's not eternal. But again, again that's a ridiculous conclusion. If you were to just read one verse later, you would see that, that was, that's an impossible conclusion if you take context into account. But of course, heretics rarely do that. Now, what does firstborn mean then? Because obviously it doesn't mean that he's a created being. In Jewish culture, what firstborn really meant is that you had the right to the inheritance or you were first in rank. And so really what this is saying when he says the firstborn of all creation, he will inherit all things. And he is first in rank to inherit all things. All things are his. There's no one higher on the list than Jesus Christ to get all things. It's not saying that he was created. It's saying that he will inherit everything that was made. It's all his. And we actually see that in the Old Testament, especially this use of the word firstborn. Think of Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the firstborn, but he was not born first. He was born second. Or think of how God refers to Israel as his firstborn. Or think of, I think this is the most clearest one, uh, David. God says David will have an heir and he will be the firstborn. 
Well, that's kind of odd if it really just means a chronological birth. Well, David's first, chronologically. How could this heir who's coming in the future be the firstborn? Well, if it means inheritance and rank, then that makes sense. And that's what we see in this text. Paul is saying that Christ will inherit and has priority to inherit all things, all creation. He is God. Now that brings us to our second attribute of Jesus Christ. And that is that Christ is the creator. So look again at the text with me. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now there's something pretty glorious about being the creator. I mean, we all kind of get a sense of pride when we make something, especially when it's pretty cool (laughs) or it looks good. I mean, think of our own experiences. We look at artwork and we want to know who, who made this, who painted this, who's the artist. We look at a painting and we marvel at the skill and the creativity. And we, I, I was in Paris and I walked down the Louvre and I think it's like eight miles of hallways. And it's just amazing what you see, the artwork that people created. It's amazing. We want to know who is the creator, who is the artist, by, by whose hand made this. Now, obviously, we know that the glory doesn't go to the canvas or to the piece of marble, but it goes to the artist. And that's why artists sign their work, isn't it? That the artist has ownership over this. If I paint a painting or make a carving, I usually sign it. And if any of you has got, have gotten one of Laird's custom crosses, he, he puts a, a marking on it. This is Laird's artwork. Because it's theirs. They made it. And they have a right to do with it as they please. They can give it to someone. They can throw it in the fire if they want. Indeed, I've started drawing pictures before and it maybe might look good to somebody else, but I'm not liking it. So I crumple it up. I throw it in the garbage. And I have every right to do that because I'm the artist. I'm the creator of this artwork. Indeed, we look at a, a building and we think, I wonder who's the architect? Who designed this? Or we play a video game and we wonder who's the coder who made this game? I mean, there's a whole assortment of things where creativity comes out and people create things. Now, this is going to seem a little bit odd to you, but everything that we create as humans is in some way plagiarized. Nothing is original. Nothing is original. I paint a picture, but where did I get the canvas? Where did I get the paint? Where did I get the brushes? Maybe I paint a tree. Where did I get the idea of a tree from? I put these colors on a paper, but did I invent these colors? Did I invent a new color just for this painting? No. If I carve something out of wood, I'm using a tree that is already in existence, using a knife that I bought. There's a creator of that knife, in a sense. So Christ isn't a creator like we are. In fact, everything that I create with was first created by Christ. He is the ultimate creator. And that's why we should be creating is if we do create to the glory of God. Because I make nothing of my own. Now, if we look at our text, we actually see three clarifications on how Christ creates. 
The first one is this. He created all spiritual things. If you look at the text, verse 16, we see the word in heaven and invisible. That's saying that Christ created everything that's spiritual. Everything that we can't see. And and this is the crazy thing because there's a whole world that we can't see that Christ created. He made it all. We also know that Christ created all physical things. Look again at the text. Earth, visible. Those are the words that define the physical world that he created. He created everything that we do see and experience, including ourselves. And then the third thing, he created all powers. We see this phrase, our dominions or rulers or authorities, thrones, dominions or rulers or authorities. Really what this means, it's a way to say uh, angelic powers or demonic powers. So he created Satan and all of his demons. He created the angels, even the archangels. He created all spiritual beings and spiritual powers. So really what we see Paul say here is that Christ created everything that exists, whether we see it or we don't. God made it. Christ made it. And we know that Christ created everything from what? From nothing. Not like us, where I paint the picture with stuff that already exists. No, Christ created everything from nothing. Through him, he created everything. By his power, he created everything. He did not start with something that already existed like we do. Now, what does that make us then? It makes us creatures. It means that we don't have authority over our own lives. The implications are crazy. I make a painting and I think I have the right to do it, what I want with it. God made us and he has every right over our lives. You are not your own. You do not own yourself. You have no right over yourself. You did not speak yourself into existence. Christ did. We are his. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He breathed the breath of life into us. We have no rights over our own flesh. My body is not mine. My soul is not mine. All is Christ's. And this is true of the demons and and the angels and Satan himself. Satan is God's. God, Christ, spoke Satan into existence from nothing. Satan is just as much a creature as we are. Now imagine what it was like for Satan to tempt his creator in the wilderness. Unbelievable. What a fool. Christ spoke him into existence from nothing and he tempts him with the very breath that Christ gave him. Unbelievable. But he's given just a moment of power to bring about God's sovereign will. But we as humans are but the greatest fools, aren't we? We have no special powers like Satan. All we are is Christ, and yet we think we are the determiners of our destiny. We think we have autonomy. We think we are the captains of our vessels. We think we have rights over our bodies. And this is so prevalent today. This generation is so confused. No reference to God. No idea of God. And so what do they do? They invent themselves. They create themselves. They need to express themselves in some way. They have no reference point. They don't know that they are creatures of an eternal God who has defined them. And so they think they must define themselves. And when they define themselves, it's always a perversion. 
It's always something bad and evil. Not how, are they, how would they were created to be. But we see it so often today. We hear it so often today. Well, I just need to express myself and invent, my, invent myself. And so, so many, millions and millions of people are going their own way, doing their own thing. They think they are in control of their lives. And one day, God will pluck them from their fantasy. He will pluck them from this delusion that they're in. Because that's what they're in. They're in a fantasy. They're in a delusion. They're not in reality if they think that they're in control of their lives. He'll pluck them from this fantasy. He'll grab them with his hand, the hand that made them. And he'll place them before him, before the throne. The throne of their creator. What is his name? The Lord. Jesus Christ. The Ancient of Days, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Alpha, the Omega, the First, the Last, the Sovereign God. And all will know who they are at that moment. They are a creature. And that is their Creator. And there's nothing they can do. Now, what does our text say? It says that all things were made through him and for him. Now that is an amazing statement. So really, what, what is our purpose for existence? Why do we exist? Why did he make us? He, he made us for him. We exist for Christ. That's it. The only reason you and I, at this very moment, are even a reality in God's universe is because we serve a purpose to bring glory to our creator. We do not exist for ourselves. We do not exist by random chance. We're not a product of a series of random mutations. No, very opposite of that. God made us with purpose, with meaning. And that purpose and that meaning is to glorify Christ. We exist for him and that is it. And if you die not having done that, and the only way you can do that is if God saves you. But if you die, die not having done that, you will be punished in an eternal hell fire. So now as we move into verse 17, we're going to look at our third attribute of Jesus Christ. And that is that Jesus Christ is eternal. Jesus Christ is eternal. So read with me verse 17 in your Bibles. And he is before all things. We're just going to stop there. There it is. He is before all things, which means Christ existed before time. And truly, time is an aspect of God's creation. It didn't exist before he created it. It's part of his created universe. So he's before that. And so really what we mean when we say God is eternal is that his duration is from infinity past to infinity future. And it's, it's interesting. We're so limited. We're so small. We're so finite that we have to define God's eternity with timely words. It doesn't do it justice, though. Even, even the Bible authors use these timely words, and it doesn't do it justice. Think of Micah 5, 2. It says this, who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Or some translate it, from eternal days. But we're still using this word days. It's timely. He's outside of time. 
So let me give you a picture of why this just doesn't do it justice at all. And how we, in a sense, just have to be okay with just being in awe of God's eternity. So imagine looking at a single drop of water on your fingertip. And you see it on your fingertip. You feel its wetness. And you gain an understanding of its nature. Now imagine you're at an ocean now and you see this large expanse of water. And you dip your hand into this ocean and you pull at your hand and you see individual droplets falling off. And indeed, one of the droplets stays in your finger. And you go, hmm, that individual droplet that I was looking at earlier is much like this larger body of water. Indeed, it's, it's, it's really the same thing. It's the same essence. It has the same nature. This ocean is just comprised of really an unimaginable amount of individual droplets of water. And if we want to get really, really, really basic, it's, it's just comprised of a, a crazy amount of H2O molecules. But they have the same nature, the same essence. Now think about a lifetime, say 80 years. And in some sense, like the droplet is to the ocean, 80 years is to a trillion years. They have the same essence, the same nature, a unit of time, days, both linear. A trillion years is just but a longer duration of a finite amount of time, like 80 years. Both are finite, though. Both can be counted and measured. But can we compare time to eternity? We can't at all. A trillion years is something totally different than eternity. They do not share the same essence. There's something totally different. A trillion years is not the droplet of water in the ocean of eternity. So Christ is eternal. He's not defined by time. He doesn't exist in it. He was before it. That's what our text says. He was before all things. In another way we can say this, and all these attributes kind of weave together, is that he has a seity, which means he's self-existent. He never has a beginning. He was never created. He has always existed before time. And he will exist without end either. As a creator of all things, he has no origin. Indeed, Everybody in here has an origin. Everything that exists has an origin, and it's a, the origin is of God. But God does not have an origin. Now, his eternality is related to his knowledge of what, as well, and this is really what fascinates me. If he's not bound by time, that means he does not function linearly like we do. So we function linearly, meaning we move one into one moment into the next, one passing moment to the other. That's our life. That's our existence. We will never get the past moment back. That's how we live in time as creatures. And our knowledge is constrained by that too. It's also linear. So what I know today is not what I'll know tomorrow. And what I knew yesterday is not what I know today. My mind, my knowledge is always in flux. It's always changing. I'm always gaining new knowledge or maybe even losing old knowledge. I'm moving on this line of time. But that's not Christ because he's not in time or defined by it. What does this mean then? It means that he knows all things in one present moment of vision. He knows 
all things in one present moment of vision. And that is insane, really. Unbelievable. Really, if you want to take it to some ends, you could say, well, I've always existed in the mind of Christ for eternity. Indeed, everything that's happening in this moment right now was known by Christ before time, presently. We'll say, let's give a generous estimate that in a million years, the new heaven and new earth will have came. Christ will be reigning and we'll be with him glorified. Me and my glorified state, you and your glorified state in a million years, presently known to Christ before time existed. He knows all things, all things. There's nothing he does not know in one present moment of vision. And that means he doesn't look into the future to gain knowledge. That's not what the word foreknowledge means. He doesn't look into the future to gain something that he doesn't already possess. No, he already possesses it. He has it. He's eternal. If he had to look forward in time, he wouldn't be eternal. He'd be linear. That's not the Christ that we worship. That's not the Christ of the Bible. The Christ of the Bible is eternal. Now, we could labor that for days, but we have to move on. And that brings us to our fourth attribute of Christ, and that is that Christ is the sustainer. Look with me at verse 17 again, the second half of it. I'll just read the whole verse. It says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him, all things hold together. This is where we get this idea of sustainer. He is sustaining all things. The best way to understand this is that Christ is actively in control of all things and all times. He's not passively reigning from heaven. He's actively reigning. We're not deists. And if you don't know what a deist is, really what a deist is is that God created the universe and then just stays outside of it and doesn't even mess with it. Doesn't interact with it at all. And obviously the conclusion of that is that if that's the case, well then certainly Jesus wasn't God because God does not mess with his creation. He created it to be self-sustaining and now he takes his hands off. And that's why many deists are also agnostics. Well, God could exist. It would make sense that he created everything, but we can never really know, and never, nor will we ever know, because he has purposely decided to stay absent, out of it. That's what deists believe. We're not deists. And many scientists in the 18th and 19th century were deists. In fact, it's probably likely that Charles Darwin was probably, would probably label himself a deist or agnostic. Probably not an atheist. But no, Christ actively sustains all that he has created. But you might ask, well, then why, did, why do the laws of nature exist? Why do we have laws that govern the universe? Why do we have the four governing forces, the force of gravity, the electromagnetic force, the strong and weak nuclear force? Why do we have those then? Isn't that evidence that God created the universe just to sustain itself since we have these forces that sustain us? But to assert that is to make the assumption that those forces themselves are self-sustaining. What sustains the force of gravity? Keeps it constant. What sustains the ratios between these forces? And if these ratios were to change by just the the smallest of of fractions, everything would 
explode, would cease to exist. We're just supposed to assume that these things are constant and will always stay constant. That they have a power within themselves to stay constant. No, not at all. Christ sustains those forces. Christ sustains the weak and strong nuclear force, which keeps atoms together. He is the one that keeps the consistency in this world, and that is the heir of the atheist. If you ever have a debate with an atheist or an argument with an atheist, that's kind of your big whammy, is they have no ultimate reality. They have no absolute eternal being who is constant by definition, who is self-existent by definition, who sustains this universe. They just assume it's just by chance and that it continues to stay constant by chance. And that's not much of an answer. No, we have an answer. Christ holds everything together. He holds everything together. He sustains everything. Now, we are obviously in the world. We are obviously made up of atoms and molecules. Our bodies certainly fall underneath the laws of nature, these forces, which means that you are alive at this moment because Christ sustains you. He wills you to exist. You exist because Christ holds you together. That's it. You exist by Christ's power. He didn't just create you, he sustains you. Now the implications are immense. They're crazy. We could go on for hours about the implications of this. I'm going to really give you some kind of bold ones. Christ sustained Hitler as he oversaw the slaughter of the Jews. Christ sustained Satan in his murderous deception. Indeed, Christ sustained Satan as he tempted him. Christ sustains you even before you came to faith in him as you went about your life as his enemy. Christ sustained all the men who put him to death on the cross. Pontius Pilate, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Roman soldiers who hung him up. He sustained their life as he was on the cross dying. He was sustaining their lives. He was holding them together, keeping them alive. While they sinned. It's incredible. Indeed, after the fall, all humans were separated from God and willing, willingly sinning against him, willingly being his enemy, but Christ held them together. And we go, why? Why, God? Why did you let this person do this thing? Fill in the blank. Why did you not end their life before they did this atrocious act? We ask those questions. Maybe you've asked that question. Maybe you've saw on the news something really horrible, maybe a mass shooting. And you go, why? Why did you let this wicked person do this, God? Why didn't you just kill them? unsustain them before they did this. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know the exact outworkings of every sin that somebody commits, but I do know that the Bible gives us a very clear answer for the broad, overarching answer of why. And that is, all things are working for the glory of God. Everything. He's sustaining everything for his glory. Whether good or evil, indeed, we mean things for evil. God means them for good. Maybe the answer actually lies in Romans 9, 19 through 23. 
So in a sense, Paul is kind of just answering our questions. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? Here we see this creation language. We're just pieces of clay to make out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction in, in order, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before him for glory. So we see, indeed, everything is working for the glory of God and is for the glory of God. So why does Christ sustain evil men? Why does Christ sustain us even when we sin? For his glory. Now that brings us to our fifth attribute of Jesus Christ. And it's that Christ is the head of the church. Look with me at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now we won't labor this too much. Again, this could be a whole sermon. Every one of these points could be a whole sermon on their own or a whole book, really. We'll just be very brief with this one. Scripture is clear. Those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ are members of his body. And he is the head of that body. And that body is the church. Very clear. It's all over the New Testament. Now the body is connected to the head. We know this. And the head is Christ. And, and, and the head is, in a sense, the source of life. Even people before modern science or modern medicine understood this. That the head, in a sense, was the source of life. But now with modern medicine, we know it all the more. We know that if I want to move my hand in a certain way, there is a signal sent through my nerve cells to my muscle cells in my hand, telling it to contract in a certain way. And it's quite incredible how precise these contractions can be and these signals can be. We can play beautiful music on an instrument or we can paint beautiful pictures but very precise brush strokes on a canvas. The things that we can do with our hands, which really start with a signal from our head, are incredible. So we know that the head is the source of life for the body. Now, certainly we already know that without Christ we don't exist. But as those who are saved, without Christ, we lack any ability to do any work at all. Anything that's good. We lack any ability to do it apart from Christ. Apart from the head. Apart from the life or the signal or whatever it is that comes from the head. The hand without the head is useless and lifeless. You can lose a limb and you're still alive, but if you lose your head, you're dead. <laughs> you guys are probably anticipating that one. <laughs> now the church lies dead without Christ. It totally does. Totally dead without Christ. It can do nothing without Christ. Really what this means is God is in control of us. Now, we see this in John 15, 4 through 5. Jesus is using a little bit different language, but really getting at the same point here. He says this, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Not some things, not a little bit. Nothing. Nothing. 
Christ is the head of the body, the church. Now, we'll move into the second half of verse 18, and we'll look at our sixth attribute of Jesus Christ, and that is that Christ is resurrected. Again, look at verse 18, the second half. I'll read verse 18, the whole thing. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now let's just instantly go to 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19, because this just basically says everything we need to know. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Very clear. Christ must be resurrected. This must be true of Christ. And if it's not true of Christ, then our whole faith is shipwrecked. We have nothing. Our whole faith is built on this reality that the cross work of Christ worked. Our whole faith rests on it. Our salvation rests on it. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, then, like Paul says, we're most to be pitied. We're going to go to hell, and we've kind of lived a brutal life as Christians. It's really going to suck. But no, we see so clearly in the scriptures, Christ is resurrected. That is true of him. Our salvation and thus the glory of Christ rests on this reality. Now, again, think deeply with me for a moment. Let's try to string together all of these truths that we've already looked at, these attributes of Christ and see their connectedness. Christ is the creator of the universe. Why did he create the universe? To display his glory. Why does he sustain the universe? To display his glory. Why is there sin in the world? To display his glory. Why did Christ die on the cross? And why did he sustain every person who crucified him? To display his glory. How was his glory displayed on the cross? Well, apart from, well, part of God's glory, Christ's glory is his justice and his grace. If you remember from our first sermon on Colossians, grace is an unmerited favor, an undeserved gift. Thus, to display the glory of God's grace, God would have to give someone something to a person who is undeserving. How did God justly give salvation to a wicked people? By taking their sin and putting them on his shoulders and taking the wrath of the Father in their place. By facing the penalty that they were supposed to face. Now, what is the proof that this all occurred and that it worked? The resurrection. This must be true. The glory of God, in a sense, hinges on this. Christ must be resurrected. And if he isn't, we're still in our sins. Our faith is pointless, but he is. Praise God. Now that brings us to our seventh and final attribute of Christ that we're going to look at tonight. And that is that Christ is sufficient. 
So if we read the second half of verse 18, where it says that in everything he might be preeminent, what this really means is that Christ is supreme in all things. There is nothing in life, nothing in this universe, nothing in the spiritual realm where Christ does not take first place. Again, all creation is for the display of his glory, and he is supreme in it. Now, if we move to verse 19, it says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Really, what we see there is a repetition of Christ's divinity. We could probably make another point off of that, another attribute, but again, these false teachers that were plaguing the Colossian church were, in a sense, attacking the, we could say, the hypostatic union of Christ. It's a technical term to say that Christ is both God and man, truly God, truly man, fully God, fully man. Now, these false teachers... They, in a sense, were somewhat Gnostic, meaning they hated the idea of the physical. They were dualists, not deists, dualists, which really means that they see the universe as both good and evil. And these, these two forces, like Star Wars, are kind of in opposition to each other. And the spiritual is good, the physical is bad. And so Christ, as a spirit being, they really taught these false teachers in Colossae, taught that... Christ was just another angel or spirit being that emanated from God. And that he, by no way, could have been a man because to mix good with evil just doesn't work. It's like oil and water. So they taught a Christ that was only spirit, and not only only spirit, but not God. So it really makes sense why Paul is so clear on this and, and is, in a sense, repeating himself on the divinity of Christ. And in verse 19 that he is also fully man. Not only does he say he's fully man, he says that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in this physical, finite body. It's a pretty strong way to say that and to make sure the Colossians knew that what these false teachers were teaching them was absolutely wrong. But now as we move into verse 20, we see that Christ is sufficient in himself to reconcile to himself all things. And this is really where we start to get this, this attribute that Christ is sufficient. Verse 20 says this, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the cross work of Christ was sufficient to reconcile the whole universe to himself. Not just wicked sinners. It did that, indeed. The cross of Christ reconciled wicked people to himself, but it reconciled everything. All of creation. All of creation. All of creation was cursed at the fall, not just human beings. And as we start to go into Revelation, we actually see the pictures and the explanations of how this curse is being lifted even in descriptions of lions, laying of lambs, and both eat grass. It's very interesting. So Christ is reconciling, reconciling all creation to himself. He is sufficient to do this, and his cross is the thing that did it. His cross work is what did this. And he's ultimately sufficient in our salvation through his cross work. Now, we're going to talk about reconciliation in two weeks. It'll be our last passage for my short series. So I don't want to labor it too much to steal away from the next 
sermon, but we'll give you just a brief definition of reconciliation. If we go back to, if we go back to verse 20, we see, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. What does this mean? Well, it means that, it means to make peace with an enemy. To reconcile is to make peace with an enemy. We'll flesh it out in two weeks, but that is enough for us tonight. Christ's work on the cross was sufficient to make peace with his enemies, which included us, every single one of us in here. We were all born into this world, wicked, sinful, God-hating enemies, deserving of our penalty, hell, the wrath of God for eternity, but the creator of the universe, the eternal God who made all things, who sustains all things, came down in the form of a man, lived a perfect life, a righteous life, and he willingly went to a cross. And like we said, he sustained everybody who brought him to the cross, who nailed him to the cross. And on that cross, the Bible tells us that he took the sins of his sheep on his shoulders and he faced the wrath of an eternal, just God in our place. And as God the Father poured out his wrath on Christ in our place, he made peace with his enemies, us. So if you've been saved through faith in Christ, you have peace with God. You are no longer his enemy. God does not look at you as an enemy anymore. He looks at you as a child, reconciled by the cross, by the blood of whose cross? His cross, Christ's cross. He takes ownership of it. It's amazing. But if you do not know Christ tonight, you are still an enemy of God. And that means that God's wrath still rests on you. And that is a terrifying thing. And it's a terrifying thing to one day be plucked out of your fantasy and be found to be in the hands of the living God. There's no escape. But Christ is rich in mercy and love and he provided a way for you to no longer be an enemy, but to be a child of God, to be reconciled. He did the cross work. He paid the penalty. He took the wrath of God in your place. And he offers to you eternal life and his righteous life through faith. Through faith. The Bible says, for if anyone confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. I urge you, if you do not believe in Christ right now, believe today in this moment. Believe, be reconciled to Christ. For he has sufficiently made a way for you, his enemy, to have peace with him. There is no more work to be done. It is sufficient. It worked. Christ is sufficient. And he offers you salvation through faith. I urge you, repent and believe. So as we come to the end of our text, we saw in these verses the absolute unwavering attributes of Christ. And again, we must know that Jesus Christ, the Christ that we confess as Lord, the Christ who saved us from our sin, from God's wrath, we must know that he is indeed God that he is the creator of all things, that he is eternal, that he is the sustainer of the universe, that he is the head of the church, his body, 
that he is resurrected, and that he is sufficient. The Christ who does not possess these attributes is not the Christ who saves. We must know our Lord and our Savior. We must know these attributes. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that your word is so clear on your nature, Lord. And Lord, we have no excuse now. We see it so clearly in in the scriptures. We see who you are, Lord. So would we worship you, Lord? Would this knowledge of you now, Lord, lead us to worship? Lead us to glorifying you, Lord. Lead us to being in awe of you, of who you are. To marvel at the fact that we exist in this moment because you sustain us. You hold us together, Lord. Not only that, Lord, you have saved us. What an amazing thing, Lord, that you were sufficient in our salvation, that we had nothing to offer. We have nothing to offer. There's no work that we've done. There's no work that we can do. You were sufficient. So, Lord, will we go through the rest of our nights and into tomorrow praising you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done. In your name, amen.